0: This is Prairie Miller and on the show. I want to take a moment to share something personal in reflection of what we've been going through in the United States over the past week, week and a half, three months, three months and a half, 42 years, 400 years. I've gotten a lot of texts from white friends, colleagues, people who I passed on the street that one time, asking, how are you? And I just wanna say, stop that. Don't text your black friends asking how we are. I'm gonna tell you how we are so you can save the thumbtaps. We're not good. We're not good. And it's a beautiful, empathetic gesture, but it is emotionally costly at this moment. We're in pain. So many of us, not just black people, people all across the country are in pain because we are reminded in grotesque, obvious, absurd fashion how much work there is left to be done to win these battles that we should have already won. We were going through it already with the coronavirus pandemic, and we were on the back foot and dropped the ball. And that, as Priya Parker put it so eloquently, was a social x-ray revealing a lot of the ills that we had inside. And weakened by that, we emerged into this latest round of assault and a reminder of another type of infection that's been in our country for a long time, this infection of white supremacy. And when those infections flare up, so does the body's response. And so we have seen uprising and rebellion. We have seen pain explode out into the streets ineloquently in the judgment of some, but absolutely necessarily by the needs of others. We have so much to do, and there have been some surprising and positive turns in this too. I have seen white protesters put their bodies between the police and black protesters. I saw Adidas retweet Nike. I never thought I would see that day come. So some kind of progress is definitely possible. And while we're going through it, it is very clear to me that we lack leadership at the top when we need it most. But we have it in abundance and clarity and strength on the ground. So let us shift our attention, our voices, and our questions to the leaders on the ground who do know what to do, who have trained and are prepared for moments just like these and know that we can and must push through because the alternative is not a world worth living in and none of us wants that.
1: And that was writer, comedian, and commentator Burundi Thurston on Politics and the Racial Divide during this chaotic moment in time in the country. And Thurston is our guest this week, talking about his participation in creating that wildly popular attack on everything that's wrong with media news today, The Onion, and his latest project, How to Citizen. Stay tuned. But first...
2: I'd like something on the side as well. Information. Three men and a girl came in. Relax, baby. Mr. Big's gonna take care of you in a minute. Black Queen on the Red King, Miss... Solitaire. My name's Bond. James Bond.
0: I know who you are, what you are, and why you have come. You have made a mistake. You will not succeed.
2: Rather a sweeping statement, considering we've never met.
0: Cards have followed you for me.
2: Is he armed? You can't be too careful in New York City. (laughs) Downstairs. Funny how the least little thing amuses him. Fascinating. Well, that's you, quite obviously, an amazing resemblance. Tommy, am I in there as well?
0: Pick a card. Hand it over. You have found yourself.
3: I'm telling you, don't go out there to LA and clean it up. I'm coming out there and clean you up, and I mean that.
2: Is this the stupid mother that tails you uptown? There seems to be some mistake. My name is. James is for tombstones, baby. You'll take this honky
0: out and waste him now.
2: Waste him? Is that a good thing? The
0: meeting is over.
2: Nothing about my future? Us.
4: I promise you'll stay right
1: there. I, I shan't be long. And that was British actress Jane Seymour, somewhat holding her own as mysterious card reader, solitaire, and just a teenager, opposite Roger Moore's James Bond and her breakout role in the 1973 eighth film in the series, Live and Let Die. But the actress, perhaps best known as Dr. Quinn, medicine woman, on the small screen, phones in from Madrid on an unusual kind of gloves on and masks, too, film set there. Seymour also delves into her current unusual turn as unconventional women in the season satire, Friendsgiving and opposite Robert De Niro in The War with Grandpa. As for sexual harassment in the film world, quote, the casting couch has been presented, and I declined. Hello, welcome Hi. to our show. Hi, thank and, you. And I hear you're in Spain?
5: I am. I am playing Eleanor, Queen, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine between the ages of 25 and when she dies at 82. Oh. Most, mostly mostly at the age of 70 and 80. Oh,
1: what's the name of the yeah. film?
5: It's called Glow and Darkness. It's a 44-hour um, miniseries, oh. a 44-part miniseries that uh, will be probably four series, and it's very ambitious and huge, and it's about everyone from St. Francis of Assisi and, and everything that happened, you know, the Saracens and... The Crusades and all the characters that were involved at that time, including Eleanor.
1: And what city are you in? Madrid. Oh, okay.
5: In the center of Madrid. It's on lockdown, but you wouldn't know it. Uh. We're in restaurants, but, um, you know, uh, but no one's allowed out of Madrid or Uh. into Madrid. So, um, and until today, it was hugely sunny. The leaves have turned, it just suddenly turned into fall today and uh, Joan Collins is filming around the corner somewhere. I was playing her daughter-in-law yesterday.
1: And I guess on a completely different note, (laughs) what was it about Friendsgiving that drew you in?
5: Well, I thought it was um, was an unusual script. Uh, I thought it was a fun character. Um, I'm a fan of of, um, Marilyn and Kat and um, I just thought it'd be something I'd never played before. And, um, the fun part was that before we started filming, I met, um, Marlon's actual mother who was from Sweden. And so, um, and, and I sort of come up with an idea of what I thought the couch should look like. And I'd gone out, got myself this long wig and everything and I showed up and there was the mother looking exactly the same. It was wild, so wild. And so, um, so basically, um, you know, Marlon says this isn't, you know, really her mother, the character, it's, you know, sort of, um, but yeah, but I definitely uh, took her mother's accent and played with it, had fun.
1: Now, in Friendsgiving and also The War with Grandpa, you challenged notions about conventional women, and your characters have their own unique sense of identity. Why was it something that appealed to you to portray?
5: Well, I think you know she's a very um, free-spirited, fun-loving woman who has obviously been through, you know, crazy divorces and all that. But basically, at the end of the day, she wants her daughter to be happy, and she feels that her daughter should should at least have married this other guy, and you know, and, and she never have given up on him, and she she doesn't think she's making the right choices. So she thinks by suddenly unannounced, arriving for Thanksgiving, that um, she can help her daughter with the baby and help her in her love life and sort her out. And, uh, and when, when her daughter, you know, resists the charms of the guy that she really does like a lot, uh, the mother goes, hey, well, I'll have it." <laughs> so she's that kind of character. And uh, she's very, um, very independent, I suppose, and, and, and obviously a nightmare for, for any young woman. To have a mother like that.
1: And the war with Grandpa was also an unusual woman and your strange relationship with Robert De Niro. <laughs> what could you say about that?
5: Well, yes. I mean, they told me when I finished filming that if they ever made War with Grandpa 2, the intention was that we would actually um, have some sort of a relationship. So obviously that was very appealing because <laughs> the, the role of War with Grandpa is not very large, but it, it, it definitely was fun. And... Uh, you know, and I, I had a good time. You know, I had a chance to work with Robert and uh, obviously teach and, and, um, and uh, walk and, and, you know, it was, it was really quite an experience, you can imagine, being around all those characters. Mm.
1: And speaking of which, you're playing a real woman right now. What are the challenges for you to play real women, Maria Callas and Marie Antoinette as well?
5: Yes, and Wallace Simpson, Hazel Brandon Smith, <laughs> Fanny Kemble, there's quite a lot of them actually. Um I love it. I love it because you you know, you read as much as you can. Obviously about the you know, the eleven hundreds, um there's plenty written about Eleanor, but you know, we and of course the you know, the famous play, The Lion of Winter, um, and film of course. Um, but it's very it's it's always fascinating and interesting and of course you're also in the hands of um, the production company that have decided what their look is and what their costuming and styling and things are. Um, so to the best of my ability, I've tried to turn myself into the Eleanor um, that I was able to find some documentation on. But really the, um, you know, the essence really is of, of... You can't copy the person, but you find the essence of them. And I did that with Mireille Callas and... Uh, I, I researched that enormously to make sure that I had, you know, her accent changed whenever she was in different places doing different things and her, her hair would change a lot and you know, clothing and um, I really was able to get a lot of detail from that. The same with Wallace Simpson. Eleanor obviously much harder because there's only a couple of pictures of her. Um, so you, you have to kind of figure that one out. And um, Marie Antoinette, yes, lots of great painting. So that was amazing. And that production was extraordinary. It's such a shame it wasn't seen in America because I think that's one of the most spectacular things I've ever been in. And the acting was incredible. The story, everything was was historically accurate to the ridiculous degree. Um, and, and, you know, it's just magnificent.
1: Now, also about real women, but on another note, have you changed your name to one of Henry VIII's wives, Jane Seymour? Please
5: explain. A million years, a million years ago, when I first started, <laughs> um, there was this tradition of having a stage name. In other words, you had your own name, and then you changed your name to be—you know, everyone did. I guess Carrie Grant. I think everybody changed their name in some way, pretty much.
4: You know, it, it was
5: it was before the days that Meryl Streep and Renee Zellweger were able to keep their own names. So. Um, I always kept my own name published you know to make sure people knew who, what my real actual original name was, but my agent told me when I first started that he that my name was uh, too long, too foreign, and too difficult to um, pronounce, so he wanted a shorter name that sounded English, and since you weren't German anyway, um, it, there was no point in having a uh, you know, dealing with Frankenberg or Frankenberg or whatever it is. So uh, I kept the initial J, and we looked for something English and easy to remember. And at that time, nobody was making news about Henry VIII he and his six wives, believe it or not. Um, but ever since I got the, took the name, that's what they've been doing consistently. So now everybody knows you know, who and what a real Jane Skinner was. But at that time, she was de- definitely the, the, the wife that no one remembered. Mm.
1: And what did it mean to you to be a Bond girl?
5: And I think the fact that people still recognize me and and enjoy that material all these years later is something, you know, to be respected. Um, And, uh, you know, at the time, it was just an extraordinary experience. Very, very extraordinary. Because in those days, being a body girl was a very big deal, um, especially if you're English. And, um, and you know, and I was only 20. I was very, very, very young. I was basically hired to play this virgin, and I think they were looking for one, and they were thin on the ground, as I say. Because...
1: <laughs> now, would you say, getting back to Friendsgiving, would you say Friendsgiving is an American film in contrast to, say, British characters getting together like that?
5: Uh, well, first of all, we don't have Thanksgiving in England, so <laughs> that would be a good start.
1: <laughs> so it would be very heartache to have
5: a Friendsgiving in England, um, just for that alone. And, um, you know, I no, I think more and more um, women get, are getting together, people are getting together when they're on their own and they have a big, what would normally be a family holiday, and their extended family um, really is more their family than their own family. I think that's really what the, what the story is about there. And, um, you know, the people try not to, of course, in COVID, it, it's hard but try not to be lonely if they can help it and you know why why just avoid thanksgiving when you can you know get your friends to bring things and everyone gets together and you and you you give thanks for having those friends so my my thanksgivings are pretty much friendsgivings with thanksgiving thrown in because i i love that holiday i think it's a wonderful time when everyone gets to bring a dish and everyone sits around and the more the merrier and we all um we all give thanks um, and uh, so it's it's a it's a lovely holiday you also don't have to go out and think of crazy gifts or you know deal <laughs> with, uh, with any kind of specific religion you, you just give thanks good
1: <laughs> and have you I wanted to ask you have you ever felt you had to face challenges as a woman in the film world
5: um well you know I, I just just the normal I mean nothing two horribles happened. I mean, the casting couch had been presented and I I declined and, uh, you know, it it put me off. um, I must admit, for about a year I was just, well, if that's what it is, you know, I'm not interested. But then um, I just realized that, you know, there are ways of navigating that. and, And, you know, I've maybe chosen sometimes to not work with certain people or to not, you know, be... In that situation, I've just made it quite clear, you know, I, I, you know what, once you're done, once you know what that's about, you just go, oh, no, no wrong girl. <laughs> Pick another one. <laughs> mm.
1: And what are the challenges right now? I mean, you're making a film. This is something new and different with the pandemic. What is that like on set?
5: Well, it's very, it's very interesting because while everyone's at home in, in, in California going, oh, my God. It's a terrible, you know, you can't go. And Meanwhile, I was in Australia, and uh, now they have no COVID there, pretty much. They've done a brilliant job. I was there making a movie, um, which I starred in, called Ruby's Choice. Um, and I did that in, well, the middle of COVID, really, in August, in July, August. I was there for five weeks. And then I came back, and then I had already started and Darkness um, in Spain, And uh, we were shut down in the middle of March when um, they shut down Spain. I got out the day before and uh, they came back to work and they said, uh, you know, we have managed to create a bubble and we can make it safe and, you know, and I'm just doing the best I can. Everyone here wears a mask. Everyone wears gloves and, you know, people stay away. They they give you space and we get tested every three days. And how do you feel? Like big time testers.
1: And how do you feel with the pandemic, movies will change and the way stories will be told differently, perhaps?
5: Well, I think, you know, there's. it's going to be harder, obviously, to do love scenes. I know that the soaps have sort of come up with some way of doing that. I'm not quite sure how. Um, but... Uh, I'm about to go back to America when I finish this, and uh, beginning of November, I'll be doing Commency again, and we're actually having a meeting tonight on on Zoom about how they're approaching that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll only be working on it probably a couple of days, but um, I know they're very serious about this in America, which is good, and uh, I think, you know, a lot of productions, it's too expensive to stick to the very strict COVID rules and too difficult. so those productions, I think, are either on hold or trying to figure out what they can do. Um, I mean, it's it's um, it's definitely. I just heard today that that things are just starting up again in in the states. I was the only production that I know of that was shooting in Australia when I was there, and I think we're the only production I know of here in Spain. Um, so I don't know how I got to be in the ones, <laughs> the ones that keep going that I am.
1: And do you have anything else coming up? Um,
5: I, there's there's a, a movie we're waiting to get, the complete green light on, a comedy that they want me to do um, early next year. I have to come back to uh, Spain and finish this up. I've got another 10 days to do in, in the middle of January. And um, then I'm supposed to be doing um, an eight one-hour um, series in either England or Ireland. That was written for me. It's a wonderful piece. Mm. But um, as you know, we don't know anything with the COVID thing. But, but uh, potentially, I am pretty much busy until um, at the end of the summer.
1: Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jane Seymour, for calling into our show from Madrid.
5: <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Thank, okay. you.
1: Thank you. Bye. Okay. And Friendsgiving and The War with Grandpa are now out and release online. And next up on Arts Express. All
4: right, well, uh, be good, house. Don't fall apart while I'm gone. Um, I'll miss you. Oh, man, I just realized I'm running across America, back Oh, it's really happening. He was sort of standing in the corner of this room, and he said, I'm going to go on this barefoot walk.
3: This is how I walk through New York City, barefoot, barefoot. He was really hitting his stride as a writer and a poet, you know, doing this kind of almost like guerrilla theater where he'd go out with his camera. He said I'm going viral. He said I'm going
1: viral.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah. This dude's awesome. He's crossing the country with bare feet. <laughs> He wanted to save the planet. He wanted to make people aware of climate change, that we're destroying the Earth.
3: You know, climate change isn't something we will worry about in the future. It's now. The Earth is just getting warmer and warmer. And the thing about it is all these changes to the
1: Earth, these are all
0: human-induced. He was doing something really dangerous, and he knew that it was dangerous. And I think that was kind of the point, (laughs) in a way.
3: If I die on this trip, it's not gonna be because I didn't wear shoes. It's gonna be because an automobile kills me. Anytime you walk near automobiles, you're putting yourself in danger.
4: We're just like, we should just tell him to come home. Like, Why didn't we tell him to come home?
1: My journey across the country
3: is a metaphor to not give up. People have talked about Mark being this, you know, barefoot, vegan superhero. You thought that Mark somehow was invincible. There was nothing that could take Mark out.
1: There is something beautiful about the road. It's a symbol of uh, going somewhere. And I just prefer to do it on my own two feet. Mark Baumer was an American writer, adventurer, and environmental activist. In 2010, he walked across the U.S. in 81 days. In 2016, while again walking across the country barefoot to raise awareness about climate change, Baumer was struck and killed by a car in Florida. He was 37 years old. And here's Jack Shalom in a conversation with director Julie Sokoloff and the documentary she's created in tribute to him, Barefoot, the Mark Baumer story, and what it has to do with penguins, pizza, dark moments, the kindness of strangers, and how does a man walking barefoot across the country save the world?
3: I'm walking, the yeah.
2: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 2017, Mark Baumer, an artist activist with all the energy of a young Jim Carrey, started walking across the United States barefoot. His aim was to warn of the dangers of climate change. Our guest today, Julie Sokolo, is the director of a new documentary called Barefoot, about that journey. In interviews and on-the-road footage, she paints a portrait of an artist fighting to save the natural world he loves so much, while grappling with his own need to find significance in his life. I'm happy to be speaking with Julie Sokolow. Hi, Julie.
4: Hi, it's great to be with you.
2: So nice to meet you. Tell us about the film, Julie. Julie.
4: Yeah, so back in 2016, uh, a friend of mine was always posting Mark Bomber's videos on her Facebook feed. And I clicked one and got exposed to Mark's barefoot walk across the country. And immediately I connected to his sense of humor, his penchant mm-hmm. for the absurd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, I was feeling kind of really despondent about the climate change situation. I wasn't really knowing what to do about it but I saw Mark out there pounding the pavement you know walking barefoot to to get the word out there that this is the most serious issue of our time so I became a fan of his and hoped to connect with him one day maybe collaborate and then sadly when I heard that he was killed on this walk the day after Donald Trump's inauguration of all times I was just devastated even as a fan so I how could I help out with preserving his memory and the amazing body of videos and writing that he created? So I reached out to his family and said, can I help make a documentary about your son?
2: Oh, quite wonderful. What inspires him to walk across the country barefoot?
4: Back in 2010, Mark walked across the country successfully with shoes and he did it in 81 days. And on that journey, he realized that the shoes were just beating up his feet. After that, he decided to look into the barefoot lifestyle. He read the book Born to Run, which is Mm -hmm. about that, and Mm -hmm. really started to train his feet and go on these long barefoot runs. And, you know, he was an athlete growing up. So this was all kind of part of his quest to... Achieve the full potential of the human body. You know, he was in Ironman competitions. He played college baseball, so he really wanted to push the envelope on what you can do as a human being. And the barefoot walk was part of that.
2: Let's take it back to his journey. So he begins in Rhode Island.
4: Yeah, in October 2016, he left from Providence, Rhode Island. It was election season, and you know his message was really about climate change, but. Due to the fact that it was election season, he kind of had to address what was going on, you know, as he was walking across the country and seeing a lot of Trump signs on the horizon and seeing that, you know, something surprising was happening. He kind of got a different taste of America, you know, sort of Uh feet on the ground, talking to people, seeing these signs. In his videos, he's filming himself on election night, processing the fact that Donald Trump was winning and wondering what that was going to mean for the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And and we see him along the way, you know, as he's walking west through Pennsylvania, Ohio, and as the weather is getting worse and worse, you know, Mark was walking as it was turning into December and snow and ice was creating an obstacle for him. He actually decided to take a bus down to Florida at one point and start the mm-hmm. trip over. So a lot of struggles and complexities come up for him on this barefoot walk. By the end of his trip, when he was killed, you know, up to that point, his feet were really doing great. It wasn't his feet that was the problem; it was car culture that killed Mark. He was
2: such an interesting guy. I think anybody who's sort of <laughs> been around lefty artists kind of recognizes Mark in a way. I mean, he was an extraordinary guy, but in another way, he was very familiar and very ordinary to us in a certain way. He was kind of a an eccentric, lovable guy who had such exuberance and enthusiasm. You have footage of him. He's walking by himself and he's, you know, he's yelling out penguins, people. I don't want to live in a world without penguins.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And that's a great point about, you know, how he sort of feels familiar. I think his sense of humor has that familiarity to it. One of the things that's so new about it is bringing that sense of humor to the issue of climate change. Mm -hmm. As you were noting about his speech about saving the penguins.
2: How did you get that footage? That was what he posted on the website?
4: Yeah. So Mark made a video every single day that he was on this barefoot walk. He filmed it with a GoPro, a different camera. Another one broke and he started using his phone. He was editing on the road and posting on YouTube every day. And, you know, ultimately, I took those videos from YouTube to construct the film. And, you know, I never got to meet Mark. By the time I started making the film, he was deceased. So I really leaned on uh, his YouTube channel, which contains over 500 videos spanning a decade.
2: That just sort of leads us to sort of another aspect of Mark. As funny and amusing as he was and exuberant as he was, he was a complete... Impulsive artist, worker. I mean, it's amazing the amount of art he created in that time.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on this barefoot walk, he was posting on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube. He was writing poetry and blogging. You know, on Instagram, he would post a picture every day sort of in the same position with his feet out, uh, a different portrait (laughs) of himself. And prior to the Barefoot Walk, he was also just prolifically writing and creating. He did a performance art project where he ate pizza every day for three months. He did another project where he wrote 50 books in a year. Uh, So he just always was pushing the envelope.
2: Did he have a computer with him or was he doing this on his phone?
4: This was all on his phone. He did not have a laptop. Wow. It's really incredible. You know, as a filmmaker myself, I look at his videos and say, "How mm-hmm. did he do this?" <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, there there was a day where I think he walked 28 miles in a single day. I think maybe the average was 15 miles in a day and to be also creating art Every day while you're doing that, like it just puts me to shame. You know, it's, I can't imagine being able to make that much. Is he, he lived such a full life in 33 yeah. years with what yeah, he created? You,
2: how much did he plan about the trip? I mean, did he know every day where he was going to sleep the next night or was it all improvised?
4: I have a sense that this was very well planned out, and especially since he had done a cross-country walk before successfully, he sort of knew what to expect. He did a lot of training with Barefoot walking and running before this epic cross-country trip, Mm -hmm. and I have a sense that he did map it out. Overall, he knew what he was getting into.
2: What did he discover out on the road? Who did he meet?
4: It was amazing to see the kindness of strangers on this trip, you know, people would pull up next to him and offer a pair of shoes, you know, I've got a pair of flip flops in the back of my car, Uh, here's some leftover food, are you hungry And, and he would politely decline and thank them for the kindness and take the opportunity to drop a bit of knowledge about climate change and maybe get a donation uh, along the way because he was, you know, raising money on this trip for an organization called FANG, which stands for Fighting Against Natural Gas. There in Providence, Rhode Island area. He wanted to raise $10,000, which seems very modest, but it was really hard for him. You know, there were some dark moments on the road where he's just like, why does no one care you know why is no one donating and there was movement you know after he died donations came flooding in and media coverage came flooding in and you know that should have happened while he was alive hmm.
2: i was struck when reading about your background that uh, you've also had quite an eclectic artistic journey yourself
4: Oh, sure. (laughs) You know, uh, I'm a compulsive dabbler, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was 19, I I put out uh, a record. And I was in college at that point and studying psychology and film and writing and tried about everything I could under the Mm -hmm. sun. So I I understand like Mark's exuberance for just like trying every art form out there. I think you have to do that as an artist, you really have to just like find your voice through experimenting with different forms and seeing what works best with you.
2: We're here at Pacifica and our listeners are pretty sophisticated politically. So I I hope you don't mind. I'd like to ask a couple of questions about arts and politics, especially since that's what our show is about. In general, our sure. program is about arts and politics. Can an artist get past generalities? I mean, did Mark have any ideas about how to actually achieve the changes he was looking for? How does a man walking across the country barefoot save the world?
4: That is the question, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well... It's not just a man walking barefoot across the country. It's an artist making YouTube videos every day and those uh-huh. videos being watched by, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. And, and in those videos, Mark is talking about how he puts solar panels on his roof and how he's mm-hmm. a vegan. And, right. you know, mm-hmm. what if we had a tax on flying airplanes and driving cars and eating meat? kind of just coming up with these innovative and quirky ideas for, for how to save the planet. So I think in his videos, you know, you get to hear about his lifestyle and the personal sacrifices that he makes, right. mm-hmm. you know, doing the barefoot walk was a way to draw attention back to his videos and to his art, in which he kind of explains some of the more practical steps a person can take.
2: Yeah, I I guess the question is, how do you turn that attention to to structural change?
4: Well, you know, on Mark's walk, people would drive up to him and and offer him shoes and food. And some of those folks were conservative or on the other side of the political aisle. And he would take that opportunity to explain to them what he was doing and why. And sometimes he'd get into a debate with them right then and there. And there's a great scene in the film where he says, I got a dollar from a guy who doesn't even believe in climate change. (laughs) He managed to get a donation to fight climate change from a guy who doesn't even believe in climate change. And that was part of the beauty of his project was that Feet on the ground, walking across the country to deliver the message, you know, person by person of, you know, look at me out here, look how much I care, humanizing this issue. Well, I
2: guess, I guess there is a certainly an important place for that. I'd also like to talk a little bit about we see Mark at his job, you know, obviously very creative guy, but in order to support himself, he has to take a job first in a lab and then uh, in the Brown university library as a content creator. That's a, that's a real 21st century job title. And he's clearly restless there. And he, he needs to break out of the confines of this stultifying routine. I guess that's the dilemma. Isn't that of so many artists, how do you make a living and what do you sacrifice in order to make your art?
4: Absolutely. You know, Mark got his MFA in creative writing at Brown University and I think with that kind of background you want to be making yeah. art full time. You yeah. want to be doing what you were trained to do and it is heartbreaking to have to get a day job even if the day job's like pretty okay. And I think a lot of us face that in the arts of why isn't this society more supportive of art as legitimate career path, because clearly the culture wants to consume art, the culture values it, but but not quite enough. And I think that's what leads to a lot of these dilemmas and kind of soul searching moments for us who are maybe more creative or uh, struggling with our careers. And Mark's struggle is my struggle and probably every artist's struggle.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think he knew on some level how it was going to end?
4: Well, I don't think he did. Uh, what I will say is that if he had made it successfully across the country barefoot, yeah, you know, he would have broken a Guinness World Record for barefoot mm. walking. Mm. The mm. press coverage would have been immense. The sort of megaphone he would have gotten for the issues he cares about would have been immense, and I think he knew the prize that was sort of waiting for him. If this all went well at the same time, he truly recognized the lethal risk on this yeah. walk. And yeah. he communicates that in his videos. He discusses very bluntly. If I die on this walk, uh, it's going to be because a car hits me. Mm. And it's sort of after a day of being honked at and cars coming too close to him. And and yet he goes back out again. Some folks might interpret that as masochistic or a death wish. And other people might say, that's just the risk that anyone takes to do something truly great. And I think that's always going to be a matter of interpretation and it just isn't clear.
2: Yeah. The really important thing to remember, yes, he's an artist, but he also had this athletic background and we don't always think of the two as possible to be coexisting. He, He had so much, discipline from his athletic background to push through obstacles. And it it seems like he used that to keep him going on this artistic project, his his athletic discipline.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I am really nerdy, very far from athletic. And mm-hmm. for me, that was probably part of how I got into the arts. It was like, oh, I could go do this over here. You know, and <laughs>
2: right. whereas
4: Mark is like, oddly accessing both of these channels like on just full steam ahead. And so I think that's part of what makes his art so unique is that combination of creativity and athleticism that you don't often see.
2: Yeah. How are Mark's parents holding up?
4: You know, they've dealt with this tragedy very gracefully. And I really admire them and the fact that they established the Mark Bomber Sustainability Fund uh, Mm -hmm. since Mark's passing. And they're really trying to invest in the things that he cared about and carry his message forward. And I don't know what else you could do in that situation than what they're doing.
2: How can listeners watch barefoot?
4: The film is available on Amazon and iTunes to watch right now. And it's really exciting after a year of being on the road, uh, playing the film at festivals that everyone can finally see it.
2: Great. Well, I think listeners will really appreciate getting to know Mark Baumer, a man with a, a very beautiful soul. Thanks so much, Julie.
4: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
2: This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
3: This time I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm walking to New Orleans. I'm going to need to parachute when I get through
4: walking these blues. When I get back to New Orleans.
1: And the music you just heard was Fats Domino with I'm Walkin' and Walkin' to New Orleans. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with African-American comedian and commentator Baratunde Thurston phoning in from L.A. to talk about his involvement in the development of The Onion, why it's become so wildly popular, and what that bold and unique humor side has to do with, quote, the power of satire to highlight the truth and what gets absurdly defined as the media today, and Thurston's latest endeavor, How to Citizen, and what that's all about.
3: Hello, Prairie. Good morning.
1: (laughs) Good morning. Hello. Please tell the listeners, what is your latest venture, How to Citizen, all about, and what are you bringing to the table that's new and different?
3: Uh, how the Citizen with Baratunde is a show I've been looking forward to listening to, and I couldn't find it, so so we made it. It's all about focusing on citizen not as a legal status or this divisive uh, noun, but rather as a verb, as a set of actions, as an invitation for people to build the communities they want to live in and give us all something to do uh, besides focus on bad news, uh, focus on, on people making things better, and what we can do to be a part of making it better. Uh, It's a show about power and how we have a right and an obligation to claim it in a democracy.
1: Now, you were involved in creating The Onion. What can you say about that? And What can you say about the concept's unique brand of inventive satire and why it has become so wildly popular?
3: Well, yeah, just to clarify, I was not involved in uh, the founding of The Onion, so I definitely was involved in creating many years of The Onion as an executive there uh, in charge of the Internet presence and our political coverage uh, from 2007 to 2012. Good times. Good times for America. Good times for The Onion. I miss them. I miss them greatly. Uh, that that place was a boot camp for me in terms of comedy and the power of satire. Uh, it was humbling experience to, to write for or create for an organization without a lot of external ego. Think about what The Onion is. It's, it's one voice. There's not separate bylines. You don't have individual personalities representing a place like The Onion. So from a collaboration perspective, uh, to, to all, I behind creating for one voice, one outlet, one kind of character, was, uh, was really good. And then you know at the time, when you think about you know, satire and the power to highlight truth, by sort of heightening the reality, turning up the contrast dial on your television or on your Photoshop, uh, that's that's the function I think it served. And it was very popular because uh, an organization like that could say things that many of us were thinking but didn't have words to put to it or could find something that felt like it was just a little bit off. Um, and then, oh, there, there it is. So, you know, covering everything from politics to, you know, area man in Florida to, you know, roommate relationships, uh, I think that organization has uh, earned a place in history for highlighting the absurdity of the human condition.
1: And what do you think, related to why it became so popular, what what do you think it is about the media and what gets defined as the news today fuels The Onion's enormous popularity?
3: Well, I mean, I think there's... Uh, possibly hyper-simple answer to that, which is uh, telling the truth, mm. um, being direct. You know, the headline that The Onion ran after Barack Obama won the first time was uh, Black Man Given Nations Worst Jobs. Mm. And there's a lot packed into that, and I think many of us could take little parts of it away when we read that and when we hear that and when we see it. Uh, but there was something really um, honest about that kind of assessment and I think calling things as they are is something that we all hunger for and we want honesty we want directness we want real and the onion albeit satirical and uh, not accurate you know was true in a capital T and and was real in a way that we don't get from a lot of the spin on our major you know, news outlets, and certainly from more explicitly propaganda news outlets uh, that are doing so much damage with misinformation to our country.
1: Mm. And since you're on the radio right now, what can you say about your mother who, quote, took over radio stations in the name of the Black liberation struggle?
3: Uh, I mean, I miss, I miss my mother. She passed in 2005. Mm. Uh, Anita Lorraine Thurston, mm-hmm. she was great. And she, um, she was down for a lot. You know, my mom was born in 1940 in the US, and that was a time when uh, Black Pride was a muted thing, Uh, when Black Lives Matter was barely uttered by Black people themselves, much less a majority of Americans as it is at this point, in terms of believing in the basic humanity and idea uh, that that slogan uh, conveys. So, yeah, my mom was in the streets early and often, uh, as, as you say, and uh, I have photos of her and her girlfriend uh, marching down 16th Street in Washington, D.C. And, yeah, she, she told a story about taking over a radio station. Um, for something awesome and revolutionary, I couldn't give you all the details of it right now. I'm probably, I don't know what the statute of limitations is on uh, you know, radio station kidnapping, so maybe I don't want to share those details. But, you know, I'm sure she was justified, and certainly no one was harmed. Uh, which makes it even better. So yeah, my mom was uh, she was real, and she uh, she encouraged my sister, Belinda and me, to uh, to question things, uh, to find our answers, to believe in ourselves, which is probably her biggest contribution. And she believed in herself, you know at a time when she was raised as a little black girl, when even her own family often didn't believe in her. certainly the wider society was not designed to listen to or elevate voices like hers. So I think she left an impression on me that she wasn't explicit, uh, but just showing the power of self-love.
1: And I assume you mean taking over the radio station, taking over the airwaves. And may I ask what radio station, or
3: you're not at liberty to say. I am am not at liberty to say which radio station, but I appreciate the dogged journalistic intent of your question.
1: Okay. (laughs) And what role do you see humor playing during this pandemic and using humor as you do in this troubling, chaotic crisis moment in time?
3: Uh, Humor is a lifesaver for many of us uh, humans. And it allows in some ways for an escape and to shift our attention away from the constant scenes of tragedy, pain, sadness, horror, and loss. Um, so humor as a productive and mental health a distraction. And I think it allows us to process some of what's going on uh, around us in a way that is less harmful to our psyche. So we can laugh uh, at something instead of crying about it constantly or screaming about it constantly. You know, I, I saw something really remarkable early in the pandemic Prairie, I, I walked out the front door to my home and I saw a little boy. Uh, a neighbor kid, little little white boy, definitely with a family with like plenty of resources, to take care of him, just urinating uh, on the sidewalk. You know, he had a Winnie the Pooh kind of vibe. A t-shirt, no pants. The pants were fully on the floor, and I looked at his parents with the initial intent of like control your child, like bubbling up in my chest to fly out of my mouth. And I saw them, and they were clearly at the end of their rope. You know, the homeschooling, the job cancellation, the trying to figure out who it's safe to be around and who it's not safe to be around. And they just gave me this shrug, this helpless, like, we're trying. And I just, I looked at their kid, and I was like, you do you, little man. Like, it's, it's a public sidewalk. The birds will deal with this later because I, what could I do? I'm going to scream at them. I'm going to be mad at them. We were all, you know, in such a tight spot, and so many of us still are, in such a bad place mm-hmm. that we've got to laugh. We've got to laugh at the little neighbor kid who decided he's going to relieve himself on the tree mm-hmm. uh, on the sidewalk rather than in the bathroom at home because his parents just needed to get him out of the house. Mm.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much, Baratunde Thurston, for calling into our show.
3: Thank you, Brad, for having me.
1: And more about Thurston's many projects and where you can find them is online at baratunde.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at Goddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up.
0: It's time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we
3: have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out. They do it every time. The world won't get no better if we're just. Change it, yeah. Just you and me. Change it, yeah. Change it, yeah.
0: Just you and me. Change it, yeah. Change it.